this is an autocracy where I, 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 it doesn't work. Okay. It doesn't work. Like, I, I take your suggestion seriously and do whatever I decide. Oh, okay. I have a no, I don't have any suggestions. Yes. No, you, you have a preference. I take it seriously. Yes. Should I save them for Wednesday? The question? Um, why don't we learn Tanya? And if you don't want to wait, I mean, I have some time after class. You can ask me then. But we've already got one, which I think we should try and get. We can get a good 45 minutes of Tanya in, hopefully. Yes? Okay. So, the the the... Chapter opened with um, the claim that given what we've learned um, about the nature of contemplation and developing emotions and feelings and specifically love towards Hashem, we can understand the verse that this thing, meaning Judaism, is very near to you in your mouth and your heart so you can fulfill it. And, and the question is that the... This idea that it's very near, we have, what we're understanding is somehow it's within your reach, it's accessible, it's up to you, it's within your power, something along those lines. It doesn't seem, as, as he says, that it's such a near thing to change one's heart from mundane desires to sincere love of God. Okay? And we elaborated on that, that shift would actually look like and how it does actually seem to be quite impossible. We talk, spoke about how love is more of a novelty than fear. Um, and then at the end, he quotes from the Gemara, right, I'm mistaken, sorry, from the Midrash, that um, specifically tzaddikim are people who have control over their hearts. And previously, the author was established that a tzaddik is someone who has been granted a kind of special experience of closeness with Hashem, creating a unique kind of love, a unique type of experience, which radically changes their, their relationship with Hashem, their relationship with the world, um, and so therefore, kind of, they're in a very different plane. And it's specifically such a person who has real control over their heart. So it doesn't seem to be a reasonable thing to say that it's accessible, it's close, it's within reach of everybody, when being a tzaddik is a very elitist type of thing. Not so much in the sense that it's a, um, more beloved to God to be a tzaddik, but it's certainly not accessible and available to everybody. It's not something that you can just you know, set your mind to when you become a tzaddik. Now... Um, I want to, as the last time we learned Tanya, I said we we're going to talk some more about this idea of that, that Siddiquim, they control their heart. Their, the heart is within their control. So I, I want to first talk a little bit about Medrash um, because I like Medrash. I'm fascinated by Medrash. I, mean, I think Medrash doesn't get enough credit in people's Jewish education. Um, one of my dreams is somehow to develop a curriculum of teaching Medrash, but um, it's like a dream that's not going to happen anytime soon. But, what is Midrash? Let's all come back to the time. What is Midrash? Um, how you read a text, how you read a text depends a lot on your starting assumptions, right? For instance, um, if I'm reading a text by a known anti-Semite, I'm probably going to be looking for the flaws in their arguments, right? Um, right, we have these biases. So, uh, what I want to do is I want to contrast is something called Pshat and something called Midrash. Um, and, and then we'll slowly get back to this line of the Tanya. When you're learning the Tanakh, when you're learning Chumash or any of the books of the, of, of the Tanakh, any of the books of the scripture, broadly speaking, the way you could be learning it from a, from a Torah perspective is either something we'll call Pshat or something we'll call Midrash, Drush. 
What is the Prashat perspective? I want you to think of it as a perspective and as an approach rather than a specific conclusion. You have a text. Is the text supposed to make sense? <coughs> yes, that's a fairly, fairly reasonable assumption, right? It's supposed to make sense. Okay. If you read the text and do no interpretation, does it make sense? No. That's just the, the, the fact of the matter is you open the text, you read the text, it doesn't. Now, are, this, is, this is true for two reasons. One, that's true any language. All language has things that are in the subtext that are required to make sense of the text. Right? Um, things in context and things like that that you have to be able to, to, to employ in order to make sense of what's being written or what's being said. But in addition to that, the Tanakh in particular is um, not written in the clearest manner, to put it mildly. It's full of contradictions, ambiguities, missing pieces of information, um, etc., etc., etc. So, if I'm starting with the assumption that this is supposed to make sense, the text needs me to do something to make it make sense, when I'm doing that thing to make the text make sense, I'm engaged in the study of pshat. Within that, are there many, many methods and approaches and ways I can take to try and make the text make sense? Yeah, right? Which means, is there one single thing as the pshat? Or are there gonna be many things that can be qualified as pshat? Okay? And by the way, this is not limited to the, um, to the Tanakh, when we're learning Tanya, right? There's a text. We're trying to make sense of the text, right? Um, arguably, in this class, most of what we're doing in this class is what? It's trying to make sense of the text, right? Now, I do a lot of talking, but the goal is, at the end of the day, that it's supposed to come down to that this is a way of making this text make sense. Right? So we're trying to get a pshat, okay? Um, in this way, I think that pshat, is a, a good translation of pshat would not be a literal reading, but a straightforward reading. So again, straightforward does demand what your methodology and perspective is. Does that make sense? Okay. What if I start off with a different assumption? What if I start off with the assumption that there is infinite wisdom in a text and the key to accessing that wisdom in the text is by using the text to examine the text. In other words, I read one part of the text and that gives me insight into another part of the text. It gives me insight back into a third part of the text. And I keep doing that over and over again to peel away layers and layers in order to get deeper and deeper meaning out of... That's a very different assumption, right? Am I trying to... In other words, if my goal is to make the text make sense is I have this kind of rough thing and I'm trying to smooth out. The Hebrew word pshat literally means to smooth out. I'm trying to smooth it out. Lafshit means to spread out. So you make it smooth. But the word drash means to seek out, right? So I'm trying to go deeper, right? And I don't want to impose things, right? So if I find that the text has said something over here, that gives me insight into what the text might mean over there. Now, one of the key things about classic measures is the assumption that even though the entire Tanakh is written by different people, right? The, the five books of Moshe were written by Hashem and, and transcribed by Moshe, but you have you know, other books, some written by Shlomo, some written by David, some written by Ezra, right? And we do have a tradition that no two prophets prophesize in the exact same style. Despite that, the divine providence of putting it all together means that every part of the Tanakh, every part of the scripture is a window into every other part. And if you iterate that over and over again, you can extract infinite wisdom if you have some sense of what you're doing. It's a very different way of studying the text. Yes? Um, I... I, I and by the way, this is not limit. You could take that approach and, and um, 
study other things, right? You could, for instance, you could study Tanya, and your goal is not to get a straightforward meaning of the, a straightforward reading of the text, but again, you could learn in a way of Drash. The Rebbe's father was a, a trained Kabbalist. Famously, he studied everything this way, a kind of Kabbalistic Midrash approach. Um, there's, a, there's a story, which I do not know if the story happened, but it definitely is indicative of, 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 of the, the Rebbe's father. It, it could be, I just don't know the, I don't know the genealogy of the story. Um, but the story is that the, the Rebbe's father was teaching a Hasidic discourse of the then current Chabad Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab. Um, and he was asked by the Rebbe Rashab how, he, how, long, how, how the, the, the shir, the class, is going. And he says they've been on the first discourse for now several months, and they're on page three. And so he says, well, you know, I mean, why is it taking you so long to get through it? And he starts to explain how he gives the class. And he says, so on this line, um, the Rebbe wrote chulu, which means etc. But the next line he wrote, vichul, which means and etc. And he gave a long explanation of why the extra vav was appropriate for this line based on the Kabbalistic interpretation of some other things. And the, the, the Rebbe Rishab said, I, I did not have that in mind when I wrote the text, but now that you pointed out, it is true. Meaning the idea is that infinite wisdom means there's always another layer to peel back, another layer to peel back. And you need kinds of techniques and tools that you gain from the text that shed light on other parts of the text and you go over and over and over again. Um, from a, just a simple point, halacha, Jewish practice. How is, that, how is Jewish practice halacha connected to the Tanakh, the scripture, in a way of Midrash? Right? If you're straightforward reading of the Chumash is not what we do. Okay? Um, so there's work called Midrash halacha. So whenever you, so when the Medrash says something, the really interesting question is not what the Medrash says. I find, I mean, that's always an interesting question. The really interesting question are two other questions. One is, how did the Medrash get there? And two, what did the Medrash mean by that? Okay, so somebody says, oh, in the Medrash, there's this story that this and this happened, or this, this idea is like, the Medrash is not a collection of sayings or a collection of added histories. The Medrash is a way of studying the text. In this case, the text we're talking about is scripture, right? That's not. So the question is, how did the Medrash pull that out of the scripture? And what does the Medrash mean to teach us by that, right? Because it's supposed to be some kind of infinite divine wisdom there, right? Those are the more interesting questions, just what does it say? Okay. So now, if the Medrash says that Siddiquim have control over their hearts, right? I would like to know, how did the Medrash pull that out of the scripture? Okay. And what does the Medrash mean by that? So the Medrash makes an observation is that there are many people in Tanakh who have conversations, internal conversations with themselves. And what you will find if you go through Tanakh, they fit into two kind of paradigms. One paradigm is where it says, they said in their heart. He said in his heart. That's one expression that is used. And the other is that they, they said it to their heart. That's a different expression that is used. Okay. Now, who is the first person who says Vayemer, and he spoke Elibay to his heart to refer to a kind of inner dialogue, inner, an inner conversation with oneself? First person in the Tanakh. That's it's a trick question, by the way. A, no. Hashem. Hashem. Right. Hashem said to his heart, "I've regretted that I have made man." 
And if you go through the Tanakh and you continue with that sensitivity, you realize every character that it says they said to their heart is someone who's generally understood to be a righteous person. And every time the person says that they said in their heart, for instance, Haman says in his heart, that is a person who is understood to be a wicked person. So you see that the relationship, so we have kind of three groups. We have Hashem, it's a category on his own, the righteous and the wicked. Hashem and the righteous, they say to their heart. The wicked, they speak in their heart. So the Medrash observes the following. The righteous are similar to their creator. In what sense? That their heart is in their control. They stand above their heart and they dictate to it. They control it. They're in charge of it. Right? Hashem stands, so to speak, above his heart and he speaks to his heart. The righteous emulate their creator and so they stand above their heart and they tell their heart what to think, what to feel. The wicked are the exact inverse. What are the wicked? They're speaking in their heart. Their heart is the entire context. The heart is controlling them. So by having this kind of global knowledge of the Tanakh and the sensitivity that Hashem is also described in one of these ways, right, is how we extract this idea that there's these, really these two different paradigms. Someone who is whose heart is in their rishos, it's in their domain, it's under their control, Hashem and the righteous who emulate Hashem, and then conversely, someone whose heart is in control of them, and that would be the wicked. What's the Hebrew for that? libam birishusam. The righteous, their heart is within, the, is within their domain. Vrishayim bishus libam. The wicked are in the domain or in the control of their heart. And also, vayim um, arli versus? Vayim in their heart. So do you speak to your heart or are you speaking inside your heart? So where is, the, where is the speaker? Above the heart or within the heart? Now, that already means that there's a very powerful insight here is that being in control of your heart is emulating God, right? In other words, we're not saying being in control of your heart is a normal human characteristic, right? That's... To, to, to speak to one's heart, meaning to stand truly above one's heart and be able to dictate, to control how one's heart should relate to things, right? That is a description of Hashem, a description of the divine. And the Medrash understands that we see that description being used, referring to the righteous, that's because of a principle that the righteous emulate their creator, tzaddikim daim lebeira. Right, so it's understood to be not human. Okay? Um, later on in this chapter, we're going to discuss the other, the, the other um, phrase, the idea that the wicked are in the control of their hearts. I'm not going to elaborate on that. But I do think having that sense of the medrash and where it's coming from, that already gives us a different way of thinking about this. It's not like, oh, there's some people they can control their heart and they're tzaddikim. To be in, truly in control of your heart means that you've kind of crossed uh, a, a, a threshold from being more human-like to being more godlike. Now, before we elaborate on that, I think that just helps us reinforce the question, right? For Hashem to come to the Jewish people through, through, through the mouth of Moshe and say, this is something you can do, we can come back and say, no, that's something God can do and those who are God-like. That's not something human beings can do. Human beings do not have that kind of control over their emotions, right? And that's where the altar puts it, that only the tzaddikim have control over their hearts. Only the tzaddikim have that kind of domain, d- dominion over their emotional life. Okay? 
So what I want to do now is I want to go from the measures now and really try and, and think about like, what does it mean to have that kind of control of your heart? Why is that associated with Hashem? And why do you have to be a tzaddik in order for that to be the case? In other words, what's so unhuman about that? Um, what's, or, or to put in other ways, what, what, what makes that such a divine quality? Okay. So we need to have a little discussion about emotions. Um, and what I want to do is I want to, I want to contrast two different things which seemingly are the same, but they're not. Um, and that'll, I think, help us understand this. One is, the, one is we're going to call, call the emotions, and the other is we're going to call a person's will. Okay? In Hebrew, the emotions, we call them the midas, that's the terminology in chassidus, and they are associated with the heart, with the lave. Okay. In contrast, we have something called the will, that's associated with the ratzon, he, that the word for that in Hebrew is ratzon. And which part of the body is that associated with? Mind. What? Mind. No, it's not associated with the mind. The, 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 the brain is usually associated with the intellect. There is an interplay there, but the brain, if we're going to associate a particular part of you with the will, um, sometimes we say it's not associated with any part of the body at all, but sometimes in Kabbalah it's associated with the skull which is weird, right? You don't often think of the skull and the will being interrelated, right? Okay. So what I want to first do is just talk about the symbolism. And that's how I'm going to approach in this class today is just symbolically the skull relating to the will. I don't want to get into like any weird metaphysics about your will and your skull actually having like a real, like, like true relationship. But we're just going to go with it symbolically for today because I think that's good enough. Okay. You'll, you'll notice if you look at your face, your head, the front of your face, you'll notice that your eyes are about the halfway mark. Okay? Um, children, when they're drawing, they often don't realize this, and they put the eyes like way up here, but your eyes are about halfway. Um, so about half of your head is up here where your skull is, and the other half is down here where we'll call your face. We don't call your face. Good? Now, when we look at each other, and we tend to look at each other face to face, right? That's how we, we interact our ability to pick up on what's going on inside the other person, their kind of internal mental states, is through the lower half, right? I look and see kind of your eyes, your cheeks, how you hold your mouth, right? If you look at someone, this part of a person, right? If you just had a picture of this part of a person, right? It'd be very hard to tell what's going on, right? The, the notion of like mind reading, I don't mean that in a kind of like weird mystical, just the notion that we have a sense of what's going on in someone else. Are they happy, are they sad, they're following along, they're interested, they're, right? It, you can't really tell from over here. You have to tell from the lower half. Yeah? Okay. So, the lower half, the face part, is that's the, that's the part of us that is kind of a window into us where the outside can kind of see in. And the upper part, that's very opaque. Good? Okay. Now, if we're associating the skull, which is up here, with the part with the will, and the skull is opaque, it blocks others from having a sense of us, then what does that mean about the will? If that's the symbolism. If, it's not how people sense us. Right, so if I'm presenting you with my, if I'm presenting you with my will, 
you're you're gonna you're gonna have the sense that you're actually being blocked from me rather than you're actually have access to me. I'll explain to you what I mean. Um, you've ever had the situation where someone wants you to do something and you don't want to do it? Do you want the best technique to making sure that um, they stop bothering you? So they go, can you do this for me? You say, no. And they say, why? And says, because I decided. And they say, why did you decide? He says, I, that's my decision. You say, well, but why? And you say, well, I don't really want to share with you my decision. This is my decision, and that's what I've decided, and that's the end of it. You say, yeah, but why? I said, I'm allowed to make decisions in my life, and that's what I decided. At some point, they just get frustrated and walk away. Now, you have to be careful, because if you do that to your boss, and your boss like, <laughs> might not take that the best way. Although, I have done that to some of my employers in time, and seem to have gotten away with it. But okay, um, <laughs> What are you doing? You're saying, I have a thought authority and autonomy over my action, my time, right? And it's not subject to your approval, and that's kind of the end of it, right? Now, what happens if you explain, well, actually, I don't want to do it because of this reason. So you say, oh, well, that's not such a big deal. We can work around that. Say, so, well, then you come, like... What you've done is you've exposed yourself. You made yourself vulnerable, which is not a bad thing, by the way. I mean, if you're close personal relationships, your friends, your spouse, all you, you have that kind of, this is my decision. I'm, I'm autonomous. I can decide how I want to use my time and my money. Like, you're not going to be close to people. Um, see, there's very different ways. So you can kind of show someone your face or you can show someone your skull. That's the kind of Kabbalistic. Your will doesn't have reasoning behind it? No. Your will is an act of autonomy. I decide. I am in charge. I have the authority. The notion that I, that I that am answerable to something I have to justify is a compromising of the will. Okay. Let's put this in, in perspective of Hashem. Let's let's think about the difference between mitzvahs and Torah, broadly speaking. A mitzvah is a commandment. So, why do you have to do a mitzvah? That's what we're told to do. Okay, but telling you is just conveying it. Where does the authority come from? The will. Right, it's God's will. And, and God's will, or as my will only extends kind of over myself, God's will overextends over all of reality. That, that's worth exploring and developing, but it's not for right now. On the other hand, in Torah... That's not how it works. In Torah, we, in Torah, we ask questions and we're entitled to answers. We don't always understand the answers. We don't always get the answers, right? But the very notion of Torah, as the, as the, as the Gemara says, this is Torah and I need to study it. I need to understand it. It needs to make sense. Right? So when do we see Hashem's face? When we study Torah, when we do mitzvahs. When do we encounter Hashem's forehead, so to speak? When we have to deal with our obligations to fulfill the mitzvahs or to not violate the mitzvahs. And that's why those things feel very different, right? If we, go, if we reduce mitzvahs to the pure notion of obligation to follow his dictates, right? It feels very much like we're getting his forehead, right? It's just like, it's there. It's hard. Deal with it. When we study Torah, very often we make the, Torah, we make the mitzvahs more pleasant by adding some of the Torah we've learned that, that gives the mitzvahs a, a, a kind of spiritual depth or, or ethical or moral or spiritual aspect, philosophical aspect. Good? That makes sense? Okay. So, now let's talk about emotions. 
okay, which are associated with the heart. The key thing about emotions that I want to talk about, which differentiates them from will, is the following. Emotions are always, 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 if we're going to talk about the emotions in the proper sense, me this in the proper sense, they're always responsive to something. They're always reactionary. Okay? So I'm going to use the following formulation. If I were to say I love somebody, what does that mean? I'm reacting to them. There's something about them that I have perceived, rightly or wrongly, as lovable, and therefore I love them. Good? This goes back to what we said previously that, that uh, about love, like to, to make yourself love somebody, you have to see them in a way that resonates with you, right? Because the love is a reaction to that. The love is the response to that. Okay. So whether I'm willing to share it or not, anytime I'm feeling an emotion, whether it's ahava, love, yira, fear, um, or anything else, there is actually an underlying reason. And if we go a little bit deeper, it's not just an underlying reason, that reason to a large part exists outside of myself. That there's something that, so to speak, has a hold over me. Think about little children. Little children are highly emotional, right? And we have a sense that little children can't run their own lives. Mostly outside of ourselves. Okay, so give me an example of, of something that a person being in a highly emotional thing. I don't want to pick the example. So I pick the example, and you say I pick the example. You pick an example of someone who's being emotional. Okay, um, a mother giving birth. A mother giving birth. Is that so I want to avoid. I want to avoid um, for reason. No, I, no, no. Hormones <laughs> are not the issue. Hormones are not the issue. I want to. I want to. I want. I want to um, limit ourselves to two things out because they add kind of complexity that's not, that we could get into, but I don't know. One is anything to do with parents and children specifically. Yeah. Um, because that adds a layer of complexity okay. that I don't want to go into. And anything that is purely biolog- that's purely biological. It, it, not that I couldn't do it, but it's just overly complicated. So pick like something that's like social, relational, you know, even if it's just between a person and themselves, it could be like I don't know. But but something that something that is much more within the psychological realm of emotion rather than just like something physically happening and then like you know like Okay. Uh, pick something else. I know it's not fair. I said you should pick the example that I said the reason why I don't want that. <laughs> um I don't Anxiety before a job interview. Anxiety before a job okay. interview. Would that be a good example? Sure. Okay. So, okay. So let's 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 assume we're talking about like regular, normal, reasonable, healthy person functioning. Why do they have anxiety before the job interview? Um, because there's a chance that they would do poorly. Okay, and if they do poorly, then what? Then they don't get the job. And then what? then they might not have money to support themselves. Okay, so that's all based on a way of perceiving reality where my well-being as a a person is dependent upon a certain degree of financial um, power, right? I have the money, right? So if you had a person who sensed that their well-being as a person was, was was indifferent to the amount of money they had, 
right? Like that's really how they perceived reality. Then this job interview would have no, and I'm going to use this word specifically, power over them to introduce to induce them into any kind of anxiety, mild or extreme. That makes sense, mm-hmm. right? So there's this way in which we have to have first kind of exposed ourselves in the way we frame ourselves in reality to give reality a kind of a a a a say, a vote on how we experience things, and then we we'll react emotionally. So there's a kind of a a loss of autonomy in all emotional experience. And the more intense the emotional experience is, right, if we reflect on that, it's hard to do it while you're having it, but some people can, but certainly afterwards, the more intense the emotional experience is, the less we feel autonomous. So will and emotion are, are in a certain sense opposites of each other. When a person has the will, there's a sense of like, I could decide and I'm not answerable to anyone other than some deep sense of my own self, which that's a black box we could discuss all the time what that is, and, and that's it. And, and the deeper the sense of will, right, you're not beholden to your mood, you're not beholden to your emotions, you're not beholden to even, for, even, even, even the, the, the conclusions of your own intellect, right? You could set aside your rationality if you decide to do so, right? That's all because of your will, right? That makes sense? Okay. So, will is a statement about our autonomy, right? And emotion is a statement about how we're reacting to reality outside of ourselves, which requires we've kind of made ourselves kind of vulnerable. We've given reality a certain degree of power over ourselves. I'm phrasing it that way because that's more of the adult way of thinking about it. With a child, it's really the opposite. They haven't developed that sense of autonomy, so the world does have that power over them. Does that make sense? Okay. At what point could you say that a person, their will is in direct control of their emotions? What would that mean? That would mean that the way they react to any situation is not really a reaction at all. That would mean that something happens, something that normally elicits in a person, say, fear, and you decide, no, this will not elicit within me fear. This will elicit within me joy. Why? Because I have autonomy over myself. And so how I react to my environment is entirely up to me. Like that's an, that's an extreme measure of, 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 of personal mastery, right? That even the thing which is supposedly your reaction to the world is not really reaction to the world at all. Okay? You cannot make me angry. I will decide if I get angry. You cannot make me happy. I will decide if I am happy. Have you met anybody like that? And what's very important here is, I mean, as a direct act of will, a direct act of decision about who you are and the autonomy of yourself, not you can engage in techniques to bring yourself to a particular emotional state. In other words, like this, if I'm in a bad mood, I know I can do a bunch of things that will change my emotional state. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, we all have the autonomy over our physical actions, right? We can just pick stuff up, put stuff down, right? And we have, do we have, a, do we have autonomy over how we emotionally feel towards something, right? So for instance, make this very, very simple. Somebody does something that is very hurtful to you and you decide that you are not going to be angry with them, rather you're going to be compassionate for them and voila, 
The entire experience of being insulted elicits within you an experience of compassion for that person's degraded sense of moral integrity. Have you met people like that? They can just decide that they feel compassion? Or do most people, it's very important, do most people have to engage in some kind of cognitive reframing, calming down, doing things to work with the emotions? See the difference? Right? Do you, ha- right? You, you don't, right? In other words, because there is a real layer of ourself where we really are subject to the influences of the world around us. And we can mediate that through the way we think about things. We can mediate that through, you know, our bodies, right? We can like breathe slowly to calm down. We can, we have a lot of ways we can mediate our emotions and therefore some gain some control that way. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just you decide. So that means there's somebody and they are, and, and, and you have decided this person should be um, um, viewed in a negative light and hated. And voila, because you've decided that as an act of will, that's how you feel about them. Now, does such a person really have emotions the way that most of us have emotions at that point? Or are their emotions just really an embodiment of their will? Their emotions are almost kind of a behavior, if you will. See what I'm saying? Like, like, like I've decided the appropriate emotion to have at this right now is indignation. And voila, I have indignation. So like... Is my indignation not really a response to the outside world. It's something entirely self-generated. That's not how most of us have emotions. Our emotions are kind of, we've, we've, made, we've opened ourselves up, we've exposed ourselves to the influences of the world, and the world shifts us and moves us and shapes us, and we feel indignation, we feel joy, we feel desire, we feel resentment, whatever it is. And then if we can change how we're interacting with the world, we can change those emotions, right? That's called emotional regulation. It's a very good thing. It's an important thing to have. The other just feels like almost even ignoring emotions, if, like in real life. It, it, it would, because, because you're not really, it's like you're play acting at emotion without really being an emotional being. Okay. So now let's think about God for a second. If God gets angry, how, let's take for granted now that God gets angry. How exactly would God get angry? Like, what could you do as a mortal being that could really instigate God's anger? Being that God is transcendent of time and space. Right, impervious to outside influence, how exactly could you make God angry? If he wills it. If he wills, that he, he has decided that these things, that when you do these things, he will be angry. So in that case, who's really responsible for the anger? You are. Well, yeah, but I'm saying you elicited the no, you didn't. by doing what he said he would get angry from. Yeah, but, but is that really... Like, like, what would uh, happen if he didn't do it, basically? Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, let, 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 let's. I'm, I'm going to give you the following physical analogy. You ever played a board game like chess? Okay. The pieces move in different ways. Okay. Here's a little secret about chess there's nothing preventing you from cheating. In other words, does the piece that's shaped like a pawn, is that. Are you incapable of moving it like, I don't know, a knight or a queen? Mm-hmm. You could do that, right? The other reason you're not doing it is you've decided to play by these rules, right? And the minute you decide not to play by those rules, right. so even though you're react, you know, I'm reacting to your move, you made a move and I'm, re- I'm not really reacting to your move, 
my quote reacting to your move was just my decision to play this game with you. The minute I'm no longer interested in playing the game, I get up and leave. I move the piece. I throw the board. I, you know, there was a famous instance with Winston Churchill. Um, if you know chess, you'll find this funny. If you don't, then you won't find it so funny. Where they put his king in check, and he proceeded to move another piece and not defend his king. And someone said, "Your king is in check." And he says, "I'm going to continue the rest of the game Republican." Because a republic doesn't have a king. <laughs> it's like like the the whole thing is a convention. You decide it, right? Like like honestly, like. If, 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 if I'm going to use the worst sin in the world, really? And that means Hashem has to be angry? Or he decides to be angry. And if in the moment that you're doing the worst in the world, Hashem decides, you know what? I have decided that I'm no longer interested in being angry at your sins. Then what happens? You're, what do you discover? That your sin has how much power over him? Zero. Right? Are those emotions in the way we normally think of emotions? And as you put it out, it doesn't really feel like a person who's having emotions in that way is really... So, to have that kind of autonomy over the entirety of your being, is that, is that human or is that divine? You see how that's a divine thing, right? You, know, Hashem, well, you do a mitzvah and it makes Hashem happy. Whatever it means, Hashem's happy. Really? Does that, it, it's the you doing the mitzvah that made Hashem happy or Hashem deciding that he's going to be happy when you do mitzvahs? Um, there is a statement, in, in, there is a statement um, in the Gemara, and there's different ways of explaining it, that Hashem gave seven mitzvahs to the Gentiles, and at a certain point, He revoked them. And then the Talmud says, well, it couldn't be that He revoked them entirely because they're still in effect. There's different ways of understanding it, but one way of understanding it is that Hashem decided, well, you're still obligated to do it, but I'm not going to really like, care. <laughs> so if you sin, like, it's not going to bother me. If you do, if you do them, I'm not going to be happy. You're still under kind of an obligation to do them, the Gentiles, right? That's one way of explaining it. Um, the idea is that, that, that uh, you can have what's seemingly an emotion, but it's not really an emotion. It's almost like a behavior. And for Hashem, that entire, we do something, He responds, I'm going to say it this way and then I'll backtrack a little bit, is an act. I don't mean it's an act in the sense of a pretending thing, that's what I'm backtracking. It's an act in the sense of it's a behavior. But because Hashem is, is, is really all-powerful, if he decides that he's going to be angry, he's truly angry. If he decides he's going to be joyous, he's truly joyous. If he decides he's going to be sad, he's truly sad. Whatever that means for him to be those things. So I don't mean, he's, I don't mean it's an act in the sense of pretending. It means an act in the sense of it's a, entirely a decision on his part. By the way, this leads us to some very interesting conclusions. Um, can you sin your way out of Hashem's love? Remember what he said about love? If I love somebody, that's because I find something that's lovable. Right? So if I love somebody and they do something to undermine what I find in them that's lovable, what do they do to my experience of love? They weaken it, right? We'll leave parents and children out of it because there's an interesting complication there. But other people, that's how it works, right? But what if the love is because the person has decided, I've decided I'm going to love you. Well, that's really what, that's really what's generating the feelings of love is the person's decision and only their decision, right? They will continue to see you as lovable regardless of what you do. And you can't do anything about it. Um, yeah, so can you sin your way out of Hashem's love? No. No. Can, 
can you can you I was give you one thing. Can you bribe Hashem to be nice to you? You can't play with his... We do this a lot. We use each other's emotions to manipulate each other. Sometimes in positive, constructive ways. That's how we build things like friendships, families. And sometimes in very negative ways, right? Does will not come ever at like, an assessment of a situation and then you will something? That's a compromised version of will. Anytime will is beholden some other aspect of your, of your psyche, then it's what's called... Um, in the language of it's called a rats and tachtan, a lower will. Or it's... Or it's right? I think a simple way of putting it is that the will is being compromised by something else. And so a real manifestation of will is where you stand kind of above, as the verse says, you stand above yourself and like a king, you dictate, this is what I will do, this is what I will feel, this is what will make sense to me, and the rest of you just complies, right? That would be absolute will. That's, 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 that's godlike. God decrees to his heart, you will be like this. You relate to the world. Your, your intimate bond with the created world will be like this. Right. And, okay, that's very nice. So I read in tone. It says, You shall love Hashem your God. And I've decided, I'm going to put on tefillin. I'm going to light Shabbos candles. I'm going to love God. It doesn't work like that. You don't just get to decide to love God. You don't get to decide to feel. Because to decide that this is how you should feel requires a mastery of yourself which transcends the way a human being is built and moves you more into the divine realm. So it makes sense that God is, so to speak, in control of his emotions in this way. But how are the tzaddikim in control of their emotions? And the answer to that is what makes a person a tzaddik is they have a kind of divine experience. They have an exposure to Hashem. The way the puts it earlier in Tanya, it's like experiencing Ganadin. It's like experiencing the, the afterlife. To, to, and, and that changes something in them. And so maybe to a smaller degree, but some to a larger degree, there is some aspect of being able to stand in transcendence over every aspect of their humanity and dictate, this is who I am. And the, not just the actions fall into place, but all the inner psychological experiences fall into place. Um, and that's that's very different, right? Um, so does it make sense to say that we can just decide to be close to Hashem? We can just decide to love Hashem. It's not just our understanding of emotion, but there's actually it's very clear that possibility is linked with moving past the normal way a human being operates. A normal human being, we do not engage in our dealing with our emotions in that way. In fact, and I'm going to speak not so much in teaching the Tanya, but just give you practical advice. The Alter Rebbe is not just saying this as a, you know, as an interesting idea. This is an actual serious danger when a person takes religion very seriously. You can just decide that you're going to comply with the dictates of Shulchanach. You asked about getting a haircut. I said, I think it's fine. But I want to check. I don't want to rely on me because I'm, you know. Asked Rabbi Kostetner, he said it's fine. Okay, but what if we had said no? The premise of the question is if the answer is no, then you don't get the haircut, you don't do it, right? Okay. Um, sometimes people ask the rabbi the question of, I'm gonna do X, how should I go about doing it in a permitted manner? <laughs> Which is not an illegitimate thing to say because very often X can be done in a permitted manner even though it requires leniencies here and there, although sometimes whatever that X is may not be able to, right? But asking the question means that, yes, I'm going, to, I'm going to comply. I'm going to do it. And you can decide. You have that kind of autonomy over your, over your action. 
Do you have that kind of autonomy as a human being over your emotions? No. You don't. I don't. None of us do. The people that do is because they've been exposed to something that's transformative that makes them more divine. That means when we start relating to the demands that Torah mitzvahs places on our inner emotional life, the way we relate to it, we relate to the demands that are being made on our behavior, we are going to create problems. A, we're not going to succeed religiously, and B, we're going to create very serious psychological problems. For instance, it says in the Torah that you are not supposed to be jealous. Okay, now, there is a sinful behavior of jealousy, which is certain kinds of thinking. There's certain kinds of thinking. Someone has something, you want it, so you're thinking, how can I convince them to give it to me, to sell it to me, when they're not interested in selling it, there's not proper sale. That's forbidden thought. And you can just not think that, like, I don't know. Go read an interesting novel instead. There's a lot of other stuff you can do other than scheming in your mind of how to get your neighbor to sell their house when they're not interested in selling their house, right? Okay. But what about the underlying, like, feelings of jealousy, that sense of, like, feeling inadequate because someone else has more and wanting that and, like, if you just decide, I don't feel jealous, I have decided I'm not going to feel jealous because that is not a Torah value, which it's not. It's not a Torah value. It's, it's bad to feel jealous. So you decide, I am not going to feel jealous because the Torah says it's a bad value. And so that means you're not going to feel jealous anymore? No. What's going to happen? I don't know what's going to happen. There's a lot of possibilities, but all of them are bad. <laughs> One possibility is you start convincing yourself you're not jealous when you are. Another possibility is you start explaining to yourself that this is not really jealousy. <laughs> um, another, another possibility is you just walk around feeling like a failure because you can't, you can't, meet, you can't, you, you can't live up to your own decisions. You decided something. You can't live, like, there's, and it's the feelings of inadequacy and failure. stuff. Like, there's any number of things that are, going to be, that are going to be negative because we do not have that rishus, that domain over what? over our emotions. That's not a human thing. That doesn't mean we have zero influence over the emotions. We're going to talk about later. We've, we've learned a whole chapter about the degree of influence we have over our emotions, even in relation to Hashem, and he's going to bring that back. And we're going to, we're going to talk about with Hashem what, what, are the, what are the minimal limits, what are the upper limits. Okay, we're going to talk about those types of things. But we do not have, right? So if the Torah says, this is disgusting, I cannot just decide to be disgusted by it. The Torah says, this is laudable. I cannot just decide to be um, in admiration of it. And the attempt to kind of live a life of religious compliance on the emotional level is going to be a religious and psychological failure through and through. Unless you're a tzaddik. If you're a tzaddik, then it's actually something which is a real, genuine expectation. That you, a person who's a tzaddik has, to some measure, experienced something that gives them that capacity, and then they really are expected. When the Torah says this is a negative way of feeling, they shouldn't feel that way. When the Torah says it's a positive feeling, they should make themselves feel that way. And if they don't, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna use this word, they are sinning, not a sinning in the violation of Shulchan Aruch, but there's a chait, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a deficiency in their service of God that they're responsible for, that Hashem holds them to account for. Okay. Does that make sense? Okay. So having that kind of genuine autonomy, will, rutzen, that I can just decide my emotional state, goes hand in hand with making a claim that you 
operate in a manner that is similar to your Creator. Tzadikim Daim Lubayram. And that requires you to have a kind of divine experience within yourself. And if that hasn't happened, then don't try to live that way. Good? Okay, so now we're going to go back and we continue. We're going to go into how do we then understand that, that closeness to Hashem in our heart is accessible to us, is attainable to us. But that will do next class.